Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the Trade and Globalization Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the coronavirus, COVID-19, that can be fatal. The disease is infectious, and one of the problems is that you can have it without getting sick. And while you're walking around not feeling sick, you can be infecting other people. It's, it's a bit like the flu. And that makes it really, really hard to contain. And so we're recording this on February 26th, and things are changing by the day. The World Health Organization has now confirmed over 80,000 cases of of this disease. Most of those so far are in China, but it seems to be spreading to a lot of other countries. For the first time today, the number of new infections outside of China was actually higher than that inside of China. Now, we are clearly not epidemiologists, um, and and it's important to say that it's, it's really hard to know exactly what is going on. The the fact that you can have the disease without showing any symptoms means that there are probably more cases than we know about right now. Um, But also, you know, the mortality rate is really hard to, to work out. It's unclear of those who get the disease how many people don't survive because it's unclear how many people have got the disease. I should say, though, that that my understanding is that particularly for young people with with no underlying health conditions, the mortality rate does seem to be very low. To reiterate, though, you should not be taking medical advice from us, please. You should, however, listen to us talk to Simon Rabinovich, Samaya's colleague at The Economist, about what has actually been going on in China. Hopefully you'll remember Simon from his coverage for us of the U.S.-China trade war. Simon is based in Shanghai, and he has had a very busy last few weeks. Simon, hello. Hi, Chad. Hi, Samia. Thanks for joining us. Okay, I want to have us go right back to the beginning of all of this. Where did this coronavirus thing start? The the city at the center of the outbreak is Wuhan, which is the capital of uh, Hubei, uh, a a big central province in China. And Wuhan is is an entrepot. It's a a real transport junction. It's it's roughly equidistant between, you know, Beijing in the north, Guangzhou in the south, Shanghai in the east, Chongqing in the west. And it's a big city in its own right. It's a city of upwards of 15 million people. And, and it's an industrial powerhouse as well. It's big for cars, it's big for memory chips, it's big for the pharmaceutical industry. So it's an important historical city and it's an important city today for China's economy. Do we know anything about how exactly this outbreak started? What's the source of, of this disease? Well, let me just give you a, a really quick timeline. As far as the world is concerned, we actually began to learn about this on New Year's Eve. You, you may have had other other things to do back then, but on December 31st, uh, Wuhan announced that there was a, a mysterious pneumonia in the city. They, they notified the World Health Organization. Cases ticked up for a few days, but then they plateaued at about 60 early in January, and it seemed like things were were basically under control. And, and they also said that it seemed that it was coming from a meat and seafood market in the city, so so not necessarily viral. But then around January 20th, 
the the situation bleakened. Um, all of a sudden, the number of cases began to rise quite dramatically, and there was an announcement that, in fact, human-to-human transmission was taking place. Now, exactly what the roots of the pneumonia are uh, of the virus are still unclear. There's a big debate about when it actually began. Uh, now, scientists think it may have started as early as November. They think that the market itself may not have been the source of it, but may have been the place where where it accelerated. So there's still a lot of uncertainty, but but it you know it is clear now that it began to spread late last year and has been accelerating you know throughout the first two months of this year. Was there anything about the timing of this that that made it you know particularly dangerous? Uh, so indeed, um, the end of January, January 25th, was the beginning of, of the Lunar New Year holiday for China. That's, you know, you know, have read about the, the world's biggest annual human migration, um, hundreds of millions of people taking to planes and trains and buses around the country to go back home. Uh, Wuhan itself says that at its peak, its population is about 14 million. They actually put the city into lockdown on January the 23rd. When they did that, the population was down to about 10 million. So there was, you know, at least 4 million people who'd left the city. But I'd say even even without the Spring Festival, I mean, because because of the, the really tight transport links around China, even without that, the risk of, of it spreading very rapidly is extremely high. You've got, you know, about 500,000 people every single day who travel by train around Hubei province. Um, you've got, you know, 200,000 people who every day travel by by flights from China to countries around the world. So, you know, this is a, a very deeply connected country with high-speed rail. People are able to go far and wide extremely quickly. So Spring Festival, the, the lunar holiday, would have been an accelerant, but it, it would have been a pretty bad situation even without that. So you just mentioned that the Chinese government locked down the city. What else did they do to respond? Yeah, that's right. So on, on, on January 23rd, they, they announced the lockdown of Wuhan. I mean, just to give you some sense of the whiplash at that time. So people were thinking that this virus wasn't terribly serious. Around January 20th, they say, by the way, there is human to human transmission. And then three days later, you've got the city of 10 million people being being placed under lockdown. They then quickly placed a series of other cities in Hubei province under lockdown to the point that Basically, a, a province of 60 million people was placed under quarantine, which, you know, medical experts say a quarantine of that size is, is absolutely unprecedented in human history. You then had a series of kind of rolling sort of semi-quarantine, semi-lockdowns o- over the past month uh, throughout China to the point that, you know, estimates are that as many as 500 to 700 million people have their movements restricted in various ways. And oftentimes it's down to the local level. So for example, I mean, even in the community where I live in Shanghai, they've issued effectively internal passports where to leave my residential complex, I have to show um, a specific slip to the to the door guards to be allowed out. In some places it's much stricter um, where they've said, you know, for every household uh, only one person can leave uh, every two days. Um, there's been a huge publicity campaign around the time of Chinese New Year to get people to call off their family gatherings, to encourage people to to not go to work. Temperature checkpoints have been set up everywhere. So anytime you go into a train station or into a subway station, 
into an office building, your temperature is being checked, um, schools have been canceled, elevators have, uh, are being disinfected every, every hour, and, uh, and you just have announcements and news every single day about the kinds of precautions that people are supposed to be taking. You know, Xi Jinping, uh, the, the leader of China, has described this as a, a people's war. Obviously, that's a propaganda term, but in terms of you know, the entire population being mobilized uh, and being made aware of how serious the threat is, it's actually a fairly apt description. So reading the kind of analysis over here, one of the parallels that everyone started making very quickly was with SARS, this this outbreak of a, of a different virus in, in 2003. How would you compare, you know, the scale and the response of that outbreak to, to what we're seeing now? So with SARS, the cover-up was was more serious and that SARS began around November and, and China didn't really get serious about it until April. So this time, you know, even though there there was that period, that delay in early January, it was a shorter delay. The problem is that COVID-19 appears to be much more infectious, even if it's less fatal, it's much more infectious. Uh, and China is just so much more interwoven into the global into the global economy. So the parallels begin to break down because the disease is different and because the the backdrop is so fundamentally different as well. With SARS, there was a, you know a few weeks of the economy being in really bad shape as they began to impose controls, and, and then a really really sharp bounce back. Uh, this time around, the controls uh, are farther reaching, uh, are affecting much more of the economy, uh, and, and we're definitely not at the point right now where we can really start talking about a serious bounce back in any way. So let's dig a bit further than maybe into the economics. Obviously, if people are sick, they can't go to work. But it sounds like from what you're describing, the bigger economic hit so far isn't actually from that. It's the precautionary measures that are leaving everyone either scared of going out or, or forbidden to, to leave their houses. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, that that's absolutely right. And in fact, I mean, this is not peculiar to China. So the World Bank has has looked at the impact of uh, epidemics on other economies over the years. And, and one of its conclusions is that, you know, upwards of 80 to 90 percent of the economic cost is because of behavioral changes, not, not because of the actual illness. Um, so, you know, basically extreme risk aversion sets in. People don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to go to work. They want to avoid contact with other people. Consumption plummets. Supply is disrupted. That's generally what what happens when epidemics get serious. In, in China, what makes it a bit more unusual is that you have these, you know, extremely heavy-handed, arguably appropriate controls that are in place that, that are accentuating this behavior. So, you know, you might have expected that in Hubei province, you would have this kind of extreme risk aversion and, and, and control. Uh, but in fact, it's, it, it's been a nationwide thing for the better part of a month. You know, the spring festival holiday was supposed to be one week. They extended it officially by a full extra week and have made it very, very difficult for businesses to get back to work even if they want to. So, so yeah, it's, it's much more about the, the behavioral change than it is the sickness itself, so far at least. Can you give us a flavor of the kinds of, I guess, businesses that have been worst hit by, by these restrictions? Well, I mean, name a business in China and 
they are all suffering disruptions. Early on, it's clear that the biggest impact was was on consumer-facing businesses. The, the holiday week is a time when restaurants um, are very busy. Cinemas put out, you know, blockbusters for the year. All movie theaters around China were closed. Uh, many restaurants were closed and remain closed today. You know, Starbucks has more than 4,000 cafes in China. It's their biggest growth market. They, uh, at one point, had closed half of them. And and uh, the fact that they still had half open was was unusual because lots of other companies have had to close all of their their restaurants. As you get into February and production is supposed to be resuming, you then find you know basically every in- industry, whether they're making chemicals, making high tech products, making shoes, is facing disruptions of various kinds. They they're not able to get basic supplies, basic inputs. If they produce things, they're not able to ship them out, and they don't have their full workforce back in place, and they haven't for the better part of a month now. So uh, it's really affecting everybody. I think in some ways the hardest hit may end up being the high tech sector because it's such a complex industry. Dozens, if not hundreds of parts going into, into every little thing that's produced, whether it's a microphone or something more complex like a smartphone. And the supply chain is extremely tightly pulled with just-in-time delivery. So, you know, as soon as you begin to have a couple of dominoes fall, they, they all do. So it's, uh, it's, it's a big hit right now. Is the Chinese government doing much in terms of economic policy to try to offset some of this damage? So in the short term, their focus is on trying to avoid the, the economic stoppage from turning into a financial crisis. So you can sort of imagine it right now, the, the, you know, the lockdown over the past month as basically pressing pause on, on real economic activity. Now, if financial activity continues, if you have banks that have loans coming due, but you have companies that don't have cash flow, then that economic pause can turn into, into a real uh, financial turmoil. So what they've effectively done is they've tried to basically press pause on the financial system. They've told banks that they should be extending their loans, not calling them in. Um, They've introduced um, specialty products, things like they call epidemic control bonds, basically allowing companies that have been affected by the crisis in some ways, and and that really is all companies, to issue special bonds to raise short-term capital um, to basically keep their cash flow going for small and medium-sized enterprises, which are really the you know the the beating heart of the economy. The government has introduced tax breaks, um, has been telling landlords not to collect rent or to give uh, discounts on leases, has delayed their their social security contributions. So these are a lot of of temporary measures. You do hear people talking about the idea that there's going to be some kind of big stimulus to get to get growth back up and strong again. That's possible, but it's just not something that's being done right now because with all of the supply disruptions currently in place, with so much production offline, it doesn't make sense to try to stimulate activity today. That That's going to be a story for, say, a couple of months from now when when factories are back at full staffing. Okay, so so now I want to to turn to the you know the potential spillover effects of all of this going on in China. Uh, to the rest of the world now. Now, obviously, if if everything is is shut down, these factories aren't producing in China, then other economies are going to sell less stuff to China. But also, you were mentioning, you know, all these all these parts. You know, China is the world's biggest exporter of intermediate goods, so it being shut down means that that companies outside of China might not be able to get 
the inputs they need. Do you have examples where suddenly people are discovering, you know, you mentioned the kind of high tech sector with all these, these, um, you know, the chips and so on. Are there any other examples where people have suddenly realized, oh, no, we're, we're really reliant on that one thing that we can't get from anywhere else? Yeah, so there, there are, you know, some fairly high profile cases already. So a high tech you know, you have Apple now delaying the release of products. Um, Nintendo has had to uh, delay the release as well of a couple of its gaming products. Um, the auto sector has been especially hard hit. Uh, Wuhan uh, accounts for about 10% of, of China's auto industry. And a lot of big companies have plants in Wuhan for producing parts. Um, and so one of the first companies to, to be hit was uh, Hyundai, which had to stop production at South Korea factories for a period of time. Uh, Nissan had to stop some of its production in Japan as well because they couldn't get um, parts out of out of Wuhan. Th- those are sort of the big high-profile cases, but I think there's going to be a lot of lower-profile cases that could have a big impact if China is not able to get its production back up to speed. Just to give you one concrete example, uh, one one factory owner who I know quite well, uh, based in Wenzhou, so not not in Hubei, but in Zhejiang Province, and it's another area that's had quite a number of coronavirus cases. They were told not to produce for quite some time. His company produces basically thin foil, the kind of thing that goes into um, cigarette packages or is used for packaging chocolates. Turns out that China produces 80% of the world's foils. So, you know, the scenario that he was talking about was that if his factory was not able to get back into business by March, that would apply to other foil producers in China as well. You know, you'll find companies around the world that are expecting to be able to wrap their cigarettes or their chocolates simply being out of product. And, and there's no basic substitute for China. China is the world's biggest exporter. It's the world's biggest manufacturing power. And all kinds of other industries that you know we don't normally necessarily think about. It turns out that China is absolutely pivotal. Uh, it produces something like 80% of the world's active pharmaceutical ingredients. These are you know the, the precursors for antibiotics. Uh, a lot of those factories turns out that they're in in Wuhan in Hubei. So, you know, we may well be facing antibiotic shortages if China is not able to get this thing turned around. Um, so it's uh, it's a really serious issue and it, it, I mean, it touches almost every product that you can think of. One of the things you just said struck me, the the example of the, the automotive sector and it being really important. There are parallels being drawn, I think, with the 2011 earthquake in Japan and the impact that that ultimately ended up having on on supply chains. At that point in time, the United States was really worried about how this devastating natural disaster in Japan was actually going to affect the the U.S. economy. It was still in in pretty bad shape after the recession and, and the financial crisis. And the fear here was that so much American auto assembly by Japanese brands in particular were reliant on parts coming in from Japan that if those parts couldn't get out, that could ultimately lead to a slowdown of, of American production. And we were still at that time at, at you know 10% unemployment and, and folks were really worried about this. I was actually working in the U.S. government at the time. And I remember it wasn't just the auto companies, but but trying to figure out how American companies, how exposed they were in Japan to these supply chains being shut down. And you asked them and they said, ah, you know, initially we're not that exposed. We've checked and it's not that big of a deal. And then you check back with them two or three days later and they would say, actually, we checked now with our, and it turns out our our, our tier two suppliers a bit down further on the supply chain were not exposed, but it turns out they're all sourcing 
from the same place that's just outside of Fukushima. And so we are more exposed than we thought. The one really stark example that from that time period that I remember for the automotive sector was it turns out there was one particular variety of metallic paint that was used by essentially every automaker around the world. And it was only sourced from one particular plant just outside of Fukushima. And when that plant got shut down because of the earthquake, that meant that metallic paint for basically all the world's cars couldn't be procured for, for a period of time. And it's not until some of these things actually happen that I think a lot of these companies realize just how vulnerable they can be to, to, to their supply chain. If it's okay with you, I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what it is that you've actually been reporting on this week and how things are in China right now. So tell us a little bit about what you've been working on and, and what you've been learning as you've actually headed out into the field. Okay, well, so, I mean, up until now, I think my comments probably have come across as sounding extremely bleak. And, and indeed, that that has been the the case for, for the better part of the past month. In the last week or so, though, it's clear, at least according to official data, that that the virus is not spreading rapidly in China. The daily reported number of new infections has has you know declined to the point that outside of Hubei, it's single digits, and so that's given the government the confidence that they can try to get the economy going again. Now it's very difficult because people are still extremely scared, uh, and because you still have all kinds of local level restrictions. Uh, on movement, which makes it very difficult for people to get back to work, for the hundreds of millions of migrant laborers um, to get back to factories around the country. So what I've been doing this week is is trying to see, you know, to what extent are they actually able to to restart the economy? Um, so that, that's been my focus. I went to a city about two hours away from Shanghai by train called Yiwu. Yiwu has the world's biggest wholesale market. It's a market that that takes up the space equivalent to about 770 football fields. It's absolutely massive. 200,000 people go there every day in, in good times. That reopened uh, in recent days. Um, so I went to see, you know, what actually was taking place there. And what did you find? So there was, uh, you know, first of all, a sense of relief that, you know, the virus appears to be getting under control uh, and a relief that people are able to begin to get back to work. But it's it's still very, very far from being at full throttle. You know, international buyers, which which really help to, to drive the market, um, have not come back. Many of them can't come back because many airlines have canceled their flights to China. And then the Chinese merchants who've gone back into the market um, say that even if they receive big orders, they can't actually deliver them right now because, because many of their factories are not yet operating, or if they are operating, are operating at extremely low capacity. So, so things are are getting back into action, uh, but you might say, you know, they're in second gear right now. They're they're definitely not in fifth gear. You said that there were some restrictions still in place. Was it? I mean, how easy was it to actually get to this wholesale market? So it's it's definitely doable but but i mean just to give you some sense of 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 how life has has changed kind of the new reality here you know first of all when you when you get to the big train station in shanghai you've got to go through temperature check to get into it um you then get onto the train when you arrive in iwu there's another temperature check at that end you also have to have downloaded uh, a special app in which you log you know where you have been uh, over the last month 
um, which then generates a QR code. And depending on whether you're high or low risk, it'll either be red, orange, or green. If it's green, you're allowed through. If you're a foreigner, though, you're then brought into yet another room for another level of screening uh, where they also take down your details so that theoretically they'd be able to track you down if they find that cases are still spreading. Then when you get to the market itself, uh, depending on where you're coming from, you then have to go into quarantine potentially for as many as 14 days before they even allow you into the market. So it's it's incredibly difficult. You know, I spoke to one wholesaler from Nigeria who'd, who'd arrived in China at the end of January, hoping to place a couple of quick orders um, to buy a lot of, of children's shoes to bring back to Lagos. You know, and she's been stuck here for uh, nearly a month, hasn't been able to place her order yet, uh, wasn't being allowed into the market, uh, and then faced the prospect of, if she actually did place the order, not being able to get back to Nigeria because she'd flown over on Air Egypt and Air, G- Air Egypt is no longer flying to China. So I want to I wanna finish with a very selfish question because, well, so Trade Talks listeners may, may have remembered that I used to cover the US economy and now I've just I've moved back to just covering trade and and Simon you were supposed to be coming out and and taking over the US economy and also being my new office mate are, are you going to be able to come on time uh well the plan had been for me to arrive April 1st I I I'm afraid that's in doubt because uh right now as a non-American I'm a Canadian I wouldn't be allowed into America. I'd have to do 14 days at least elsewhere before being allowed in and then have the added complication of my wife and two young daughters still still being back here in Shanghai. They were going to stay here until the end of the school year. And I, I certainly am not going to leave them if the situation in China is like this. But then we as a, uh, as a family can't actually physically leave because the movers aren't operating right now. So uh, I mean, I don't want to um, exaggerate the hardship that I'm facing, but uh, on a very small level, I'm a, I'm a casualty of of the epidemic, and so I'm I'm eagerly waiting for for it to be under control, for things to get back to normal, and for the restrictions to be lifted. And as soon as that happens, I promise that I will be joining you in DC. Okay, I'm really looking forward to it, <laughs> Simon. Thank you so much for all the work and all the reporting that you're that you're doing there. And please stay safe. Okay, thank you both. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Simon Rabinovich of The Economist for all the work he has been doing to inform the world about the implications of the coronavirus. And thanks also to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Please remember to, to wash your hands often and, uh, and try to wear masks in crowded public places because two ways of fighting the virus are better than one.